This podcast is offered by Jikoji Zen Center on the web at jikoji.org. Our programs are made possible by donations from people like you. Good morning. My name is Kokyo from the Lowlands. <laughs> nice to be so high up here. Sunday. Closer to space up here on the ridge. I have this vague kind of memory that I've, that I've started a lot of talks in the past with this uh, basic teaching of the Buddha. So you might have heard this before, and I might have heard this before, but it might be worth hearing again. I've heard that, that the Buddha said more than once, maybe said kind of frequently, I only teach two things. I teach discontent and the end of discontent. Sometimes we might say, I teach suffering and the end of suffering. But if you start looking into the Buddha's teachings, it seems like there's volumes and volumes of, of sutras the Buddha taught, so many different teachings, it sounds like more, seems like more than two. Uh, maybe we could see that all these 84,000 teachings or however many there are, are all come down to these basic two. They're teaching about what is discontent, understanding what is discontent, and uh, understanding the end of discontent and how this is possible. <clears throat> In this way, I think the Buddha's teaching is very practical. Who amongst us is not interested in contentment and the end of discontent? And uh, for our own, our own personal liberation from discontent, there's all these teachings. And then the Bodhisattva path is all about ending discontent for all beings. If that's the Bodhisattva vow, then, uh, then seems to me like a good starting place is to really understand what is discontent and how it ends in order to help end it for others. So it may be good to start with ourselves because we can examine our own experience and then based on directly understanding our own experience we can then try to meet others and relate to others in a 
way that also relieves discontent. I recently came across this teaching and I think I'll attribute it to the Dharma teacher Shinzen Young, who uh, put this basic teaching of the Buddha as a, uh, a mathematical formula. I've been contemplating this formula that uh, we could say suffering equals pain times resistance. Or we could say it, um, discontent equals discomfort, or unpleasant sensations times manipulation. Resistance is maybe our main form of manipulation, uh, but also um, holding on and grasping could be a form of manipulation. Mm. I think we could call that a kind of resistance, but it's sort of the opposite direction. But uh, I really appreciate this, setting this up as a, as a multiplication problem. In the past, I might have thought of it more as an addition problem, like, like discontent is, is pain or unpleasant sensations plus uh, plus resistance. But I think there's virtues of making it into a multiplication problem. Um, so if we, if we look at, um, at uh, what, we, what we could call pain or unpleasant sensations, um, if we have like, like, um, five units of pain times five units of resistance, we get 25 units of suffering or discontent. And um, if, we, if we lower the pain units, which is, I would propose, what most of us outside of the, of the Zen realm, <laughs> of, outside of spiritual practice, mostly we're trying to reduce that part of the equation, the painful experiences. We don't notice maybe even so much that we're resisting anything, but we're just trying to um, reduce unpleasantness by creating pleasantness. <laughs> uh, and that's valid. It actually re- reduces the overall discontent, right, in this formula. So if we only have one unit of discontent, like we're basically pretty content because we created a comfortable situation for ourselves, we still resist things. For five units of resistance times one unit of pain is only five units of overall discontent, right? And uh, I think most, most, we might even go so far as to say most activities in our life may be about reducing this factor of um, unpleasantness or you know, pain is kind of a strong word, but even just any unpleasant, particularly physical sensations. Uh, but the realm of spiritual practice, 
especially Buddha's teaching, is, um, is not so much concerned with that. Well, you know, it's not like we neglect that. We can still work on reducing our, our actual unpleasant situations. But it's more about looking at the second part of resistance or manipulation. Right? That's where the practice comes in. Because if we, if we still have the original five units of, of uncomfortable situation, but only have one unit of resistance, like we're really kind of almost okay with um, our unpleasant situation, then we only have five units of overall discontent as opposed to 25. Right? So you can work on either, either the actual physical situation of unpleasantness and or you can work on the resistance part to reduce the suffering. Particularly, the Buddha was concerned with, um, you know, he wasn't a, a trained doctor, medical doctor, to reduce physical suffering. Um, he wasn't into, like, um, building houses to shelter people from the elements to reduce their um, unpleasant getting rained on, right? But he was into like, he was, le- he was appreciating, I think, that other people were working in those realms, but he's like, I'm gonna, I wanna really work on and help people to understand this, this second part of this resistance or manipulation. And I think one great virtue of this, why this multiplication problem works very nicely is if you reduce resistance, and I think the Buddha is proposing that it's possible to reduce the resistance or manipulation down to zero. <laughs> Might seem impossible, but I think possible. I think zazen, if we're exploring this in meditation, right? We're not so much trying to create a, a more comfortable situation. We should create as comfortable as we can, but what if we really don't manipulate or resist our experience at all? We just let it be. We just completely accept. Like zero resistance. Then you could have five units of discomfort maybe even 20 units of of physical discomfort with zero resistance equals zero discontent. Wow. That's why I think this is is nice to use multiplication instead of addition here. And it is a Buddhist proposal. That's that's, um, so-called nirvana is the, is, um, the, the definition of nirvana is zero discontent. It's the end of discontent, but not necessarily the end of like physical uncomfortableness, because we know that the Buddha, um, throughout his life, and especially at the end of his life, he had all kinds of physical issues and bad back, and and it, you know his body died of food poisoning, and it was a rough, rough going last few months for that body. Uh, But could it be that the Buddha didn't resist that at all? That was just the nature of being an embodied person, is to have unpleasant sensations. 
And uh, I think we could also ap apply this to, um, to pleasant sensations. Like uh, we could say, if pain times um, resistance equals suffering or discontent, I think we could also say pleasure times resistance equals discontent. And we might say, well, why would we ever re resist pleasure? But I think actually we do in various ways. Like we're, um, especially if we talk about resistance as a kind of, any kind of manipulation or, or, or um, wanting it to be slightly different. So sometimes we might be enjoying ourselves completely, everything's just fine, but there's some doubt in our mind of like, well, is it okay just to enjoy myself now? Shouldn't I be, you know, maybe I should be doing something more productive than just sitting here enjoying myself. And then we're kind of like manipulating the contentment and it's creating discontent. Right? Or, um, or we might feel like everything's going really well, like really well, we're feeling very happy, but there's this little doubt of like, I think this is, you know, how can I keep extend this a little bit longer? How can I keep it going? That's kind of a manipulation, a kind of resistance to the, just the present, pleasant experience. There's a little bit of like, this is great, and like, let's keep it going. It, it diminishes it to, to think, to feel and think, let's keep it going, is actually creates a little bit of discontent with this perfectly fine, impermanent, pleasant experience, which all experiences are impermanent. Does that make sense? So even um, pleasure plus resist, time's resistance is, um, is discontent. But a pleasant experience, even just a little bit pleasant or um, extremely blissful with no manipulation of it, um, zero resistance or zero manipulation would be, again, zero discontent. It's like, no problem. This is just... So in this way that you, you could even say, well, why even bother talking about pleasant and unpleasant? Basically, any experience <laughs> times resistance is, um, is, uh, is dissatisfying. And I think that Shinzen Young, the one who came up with this formula, puts it in reverse too. If, if you, if you say um, uh, pleasant or unpleasant experience times equanimity, or times, you know, equanimity is another name for non-resistance. Pleasant or unpleasant experience times equanimity equals contentment. So if you have a little equanimity, you have a little contentment. If you have complete equanimity, you have a lot of contentment. If you have zero equanimity, you have zero contentment. I think it's worth, worth considering this formula. And uh, also worth, worth exploring what we mean by these three, these three terms. Uh, discontent, uh, 
I think is the main issue that we're that we're working with. The Buddha calls dukkha, you know, like like a, a wheel with an axle out of balance. Is supposedly one etymology of this word dukkha. Like we just, it feels unbalanced and it's unnecessary, and uh, it's possible to relieve this discontent. And and we are all as humans, as all sentient beings, I would propose. Um, always wanting to end discontent. Our true nature is contentment, and, and um, it's always trying to come into equilibrium with itself. We can't help it. So therefore, um, since we're kind of wired to move towards contentment, the Buddha offers like, well, here's a, here's a practical and kind of efficient and um, sensible way to do that. Well, you don't have to change, the nice thing about this kind of contentment is you don't have to change any of the external conditions. It's just a, um, it's just a uh, non-resistance. So um, resistance we, are, we talked about as, as any kind of manipulation, any kind of like, um, not just being the present experience. And um, this so-called pain or un- unpleasant, I think is an, is an interesting one to explore uh, what that actually means. Notice here that we're differentiating unpleasant experiences from discontent. Right? In other words, you can have a, especially if we're talking in the physical sensations in the body, we know that we can have an uncomfortable physical sensation and just be totally okay with that. And I think zazen meditation practice really helps train the mind in this. We can feel like, that's why we say, let's sit for 40 minutes without moving. And uh, outside of a meditation practice, almost nobody would ever do that. No one would ever dream of such a crazy thing as to like not move at all for 40 minutes. Probably, no matter how comfortable we set up the body, there'll be a little bit of discomfort, probably, in 40 minutes, and, uh, or like a fly lands on us or something. And uh, we can learn that if we don't do anything about that, if it's not you know, extremely uncomfortable anyway, it's actually okay. We can be completely content with feeling a physical discomfort Right, by not manipulating it. That's an amazing lesson of zazen. So, very simple, yet very profound, I think, thing that we all learn if we practice meditation regularly. We learn it experientially. We can really let our experience be. And when we do that, everything goes much easier. Everything's much more in balance. There's, there's more contentment. There's less discontent. So that's the difference between what we're calling pain and suffering in this equation, or discomfort and discontent. It's really important to distinguish these two, right? And uh, to explore this discomfort part, or you know, pain, unpleasant experiences, this is just something I, I've been exploring. Even just the Zazen period before this talk, it's kind of a new exploration for me, and uh, maybe you can help me with it and, and uh, just tell me if there's something I'm missing here. Because this, this latest um, exploration, 
seems to me, at least this could possibly be the case, that what we call unpleasant experiences or pain is always a physical, so-called physical, bodily sensation. And uh, this is the kind of strange thing that I had never occurred to me before this exploration, but could it even be that there's no such thing as purely mental uh, displeasure, purely mental pain? Sounds strange to me, too. But um, um, in other words, I would say that any emotion and, uh, and what we call like afflictive emotions in Buddhism, there's some non-afflictive emotions like love, but there's afflictive emotions like hate and greed and so on. Um, but all, all of these, what we could call emotions, are always a, a, um, a mix, a completely, um, a completely stirred up mix. In other words, they're completely mixed together. A thought or a series of thoughts and a physical bodily sensation or a series of sens- sensations. I think that's what emotions are. I've been contemplating that for a while. I don't think there's, uh, I can't think of any emotion that would be just a physical sensation without any thought connected with it at all. I don't think, there are physical sensations with no thought, but I wouldn't call them emotions, right? And I don't think there can be an emotion that's purely just a thought with no physical sensation. See if you can think of examples. I, I can't think of any. I think it's always this blending of the two. And it seems, in this exploration, it seems to me that, that what the actual painful part of painful emotions is a physical bodily sensation. You might say, it, it, yeah, I know it has a physical bodily sensation, but aren't, aren't there painful thoughts that go with the, the, um, the physical sensation? I kind of feel like today, that, and I, I might change my mind on this very soon, especially if you can convince me otherwise, that um, there's no such thing as a painful thought in this way of looking at it. I think there might not be such thing as a painful thought. There's just thoughts. There could even be a thought of like, um, you know, a thought of, ha- of hatred or anger based on a, on a thought of, total separation between me and you. This is what hatred and anger are. And a very strong thought or a series of thoughts like that. But it's not so much that that thought is painful, but that thought always creates a very intense, painful, bodily sensation. Generally of like constriction and heat and in the, in the head and in the belly and the guts, everything, like the muscles constrict. And generally, in general, it's not always true, but I think in general, constricted muscles create, or are called like unpleasant sensations for human beings. And really relaxed muscles (laughs) tend to go with pleasant sensations. Not always, but I think generally. 
and what we call afflictive emotions like greed or you know craving and um, and hatred or anger I think always have um, tight muscles <laughs> that go with them and we call that unpleasant does this seem weird yes my Uh-huh. Yeah, it's painful, yeah. I suppose that I suppose that would be that would be also be Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think for me when I regret if I try to generate some regret right now, <laughs> remember something that I would regret, it it's totally there's a bodily sensation there. Yeah. There's a thought, of course, too. And the thought, we usually think it's an unpleasant thought, but um, I think the, um, it comes with a bodily sensation. It's maybe a more subtle bodily sensation than, um, than anger. Um, but, you know, like... Yeah, I think so. They're all, they're woven together, and I think usually the thought comes first with emotions of regret or anger or, or craving. And then right afterwards follows this tension, bodily tension. And that's what we notice. Mo- we notice both thought and the feeling, but we notice the unpleasantness, I think more in the body, definitely more in the body. But this, this unusual proposal today is like, could it be that it's on- the, the only actual unpleasant experience, part of the experience is bodily sensation. That the thought itself of regret is, um, is a complex thought and memory and so on, but it's not inherently unpleasant, but it always fuels, it always creates conditions, this unpleasant bodily sensation. And things like jealousy create bodily, and they create different types of bodily sensation. Um, sadness or grief, I think sadness is not necessarily an afflictive emotion. Afflictive emotion means like um, it's it's afflictive emotion. I think uh, always has an element of resistance in it. Going back to this formula, so like um, craving, anger and hatred, um, envy and jealousy, um, you know maybe regret sometimes isn't considered a, an afflictive emotion, but these, these other ones that are always about resistance, um, and they ha- they're unnecessary because they have uh, resistance is unnecessary. We know the Buddha says you can reduce it to zero. So therefore, afflictive emotions are ultimately unnecessary, but it's very hard to always have zero resistance. But I think afflic- the cra- craving, um, anger, jealousy are, are uh, always involving resi- resistance to what's happening. And, uh, and they're a mix of a physical sensation and a thought. And it's painful or, unpl- or you know, it's discontent for ourselves and usually for others too. That's why there's a lot of, a lot of, um, the K- Buddha had a lot of motivation to read to reduce 
um, afflictive emotions because they hurt ourselves and others. Whereas there's other emotions that are not afflictive like sadness or grief. I don't think is afflictive because it doesn't have to be resistant. Like if something, if, um, you know, I was thinking about my mom died recently, uh, you know, a month or so ago, and uh, there was some deep sadness there. Uh, but when I, f especially when it first happened, I really felt that sadness. It didn't feel like resistant. It did. It wasn't like a sudden, a sudden death either. It was like I knew it was coming, and um, she was quite old, and I felt like it was appropriate. I didn't, wasn't resisting the fact that she died. I didn't think she should keep living, actually. But I still felt this emotion, which is, again, a combination of, of physical sensation. I think sadness and grief, interestingly, is in, in the heart area. We feel the physical, in the physical heart area, we feel this attention. That's what, at least for me, there's tension in the heart area, whereas anger, there's tension more in the gut area. But there, there's tension, and it's somewhat unpleasant, even though there's no um, resistance. So I think we c it is possible to have physical sensations, unpleasant physical sensations, with no resistance, and, it's and those are just called like sadness or grief. I think it's not a... And I think the Buddha would say there's not a, there's n it doesn't have to be discontent. If there's no resistance, we don't call sadness discontent in this, in this definition. But um, anger is like an afflictive emotion. It's, a, it's an unpleasant physical sensation plus um, or, you know, times a resistance to what's happening. And therefore, um, that is called discontent. But in both cases, in the non-resistant non painful situation called sadness and in the resistant painful situation called uh, anger, in both of those different types of painful physical sensations, if we have no resistance to those physical sensations, then there's no discontent. So you could, so just to finish that thought, you, you could have the, um, you could have the, the tension in the gut, what we call that we call anger. Um, fueled by resistance, but if you don't resist the physical sensation, you start actually the the um, if you don't resist the sensation caused by resistance, it starts to diminish the discontent, and interestingly, the anger starts to also decrease, and the stories around the anger d decrease actually. We so we can we can work on the stories. I'm angry at that person. We can kind of re rework that story, reduces the whole discontent situation, or we can work on just staying with the physical sensation, the burning in the stomach of anger, and just almost try to disconnect it from the story of how angry I am at that person. And that's why I think um, with, when kids are really angry, the parent will sometimes say, just take a deep breath. If we're working on the physical they don't say, stop being angry at, at your friend. They might say that too, but they might say, just take a really deep breath. In other words, try to resist your, stop fueling by resistance this incredibly burning 
fiery, angry sensation. And when you take that deep breath, you start to accept the feeling a little bit more, get more settled in the feeling. Then you maybe will feel less angry at your friend. I think it works this way. Yes. Like what would be an example? Like last Friday, there were several million people demonstrating mm. for climate change. Um, yeah. Discontent with policy as it mm. is, and bringing resistance to how things are. Yeah, yeah. So I think I think it is a little different definition. I would say here in this in this model, I would propose would, and the Buddha is saying I think also, we're talking about just resistant to our own painful feelings, in this case. I have to interrupt at this point because I noticed uh, my wife and I were driving on Friday past the clock tower, yeah. where there were a group of meditators sitting out in the traffic almost on the dirt floor. Uh, meditation, kind of a resistance to something. It was the global climate thing. Yeah. And I noticed you in the second row. <laughs> yeah. 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 I was there. I was, I was resisting climate change, right? But this is, I think this is important, that that's not the kind of resistance. I wasn't resisting a feeling, a painful feeling. I think it's important to make that distinction. Can, does that make sense? Um, and also, even resisting other people's painful feelings, I think is, is now that's a whole different story too. I think we're this in this model of the Buddha. We're just staying with our own experience. Now, if we have, if we have a painful feeling, which again I'm, I'm proposing, like either anger or grief is a mix of a physical sensation and a thought about climate change, right? We, we might have a painful experience um, due to what's happening in this world, right? So I think to not resist that me- doesn't mean to not resist climate change. It means to not resist that feeling, to not, to not manipulate that um, experience of painfulness, to usually let that, let that be um, what it is. And then, I think, then... Um, what, uh, what may have started as um, anger at others that's, that's making us hotter um, is tur- maybe turns into more like grief. I think often anger is, a, anger is sometimes a resistance to grief in many cases. And some might say that, well, actually, don't we want to have don't we want anger in the, in, for climate change, for example? Wouldn't it be good to have anger because that, f- that heat fuels our, the resistance movement, fuels our activities that will to try to stop this catastrophe? And um, I, I kind of feel not, not so sure about that. I don't know if it's actually helpful to have anger in the sense that we're talking about the ecclesia the afflictive emotion of anger. I don't know if it's helpful to reduce climate change. I think grief is because that will, we feel this pain and we know many others feel this pain and we, we want to 
change the situation to reduce the um, this grief. I think strong energy is good, but um, anger in the sense of of um, trying to manipulate our emotion, trying to manipulate our experience internally. That's what I would call anger. I don't think that's helpful. Yes? Um, in this context, I was wondering if the resistance itself, whether, you know, f- fueling the anger, for instance, or something, uh, that, that we, we have a sort of counterpoint within us that's actually, we're attracted uh, by, by this uh, resistance. There's a, there's a part of us yeah. that wants to sort of it's true, yeah. Sometimes, mm-hmm. and I think it's I think it's because it um, that um, even that feel even that burning feeling. I would say it's unpleasant, even when we're, we're attracted to it. It's unpleasant, but it has it has a pleasant quality also, which is like power or energy. We feel like we feel strong, right? Yeah, it kind of wakes us up, and we feel. Um, we like that feeling of strength, even though it's kind of unpleasant. But if it's a true, you know, afflictive emotion, like we're, it's resistance to, um, to the situation at hand, then, um, yeah, we're repeating a pattern. And I think that ultimately that, that feeling of, of power or strength that comes with the, with strong anger. I think more and more we, as practitioners we see that it's it, the the um, raw gut immediate response is it feels like it's it's there's something pleasant in it because we feel strong and we don't want to feel weak. We we don't want to feel the grief maybe actually underneath so it, it rises up. But I think the more and more we explore it, the more we see that it's really unpleasant. We're attracted to it, but it's really unpleasant actually, especially the more we sit and the more we see what's really content or pleasant is when we're really relaxed. (laughs) Uh, That's always, I think, most, um, that equilibrium is always most content. That's why even extreme pleasure where there's tension, I think, uh, for meditators, even like excitement, for example, like on a roller coaster, we like it, but we've, as meditators, maybe we start to feel like, I'd rather just be like totally cooled out sitting zazen than on a roller coaster. Like excitement is a little less content than just t- stillness and serenity. <laughs> Might seem strange to the roller coaster fans. <laughs> but what do, you, what do you all think about this idea, t- my today's idea of that there's no such thing as a, as a painful mental experience. No such thing as a painful thought or, um, or mental experience. Is that really weird? I mean, I think in Buddhism they usually do talk about painful mental, but yeah. Yeah, that's, that's the thesis of The Strange Order of Things by Antonio Damasio, ah. which is that all uh, thought is accompanied by feeling, like you said, bodily feeling. Physical? Are, are inseparable. Mm. And that we just don't recognize it unless it's in the more extreme 
or if it goes out of a certain area of intensity, mm -hmm. then we recognize uh, a feeling that goes along, but all thoughts are accompanied by feelings. And the thoughts themselves are not pleasant or unpleasant. They're accompanied by pleasant yeah, or unpleasant. It's always a physical one, exactly as you said in this theory. And his theory is that this is a this is the uh, organism's constant um, movement towards homeostasis. Uh huh. Yeah, makes sense. And so, when something's out of homeostasis, mm -hmm. it produces the physical um, sensations that, because over time, the neural pathways associate. Like for instance, childhood childhood abuse and chronic pain are very much interrelated over time. You know, when you look at the people mm -hmm. chronic pain, a huge percentage of those people have some kind of traumatic experience mm -hmm. or, or childhood trauma. Mm -hmm. And what happens is that physical sensation, because what we call chronic pain is just a sensation that gets interpreted in the amygdala as at a certain point. It's kind of like massage. You can massage someone and that same sensation that feels good, if it becomes violent, mm -hmm. or if it becomes more intense, it, then the amygdala recognizes uh, it as pain. Yes. The same sensation, yeah. though, going through the same neural pathways. Mm -hmm. And then what happens, because we have in our brain, in our memory, we have that memory, for instance, of a chronic uh, of, of a traumatic experience um, that that is a company that has in the past accompanied that pain. Now, when we feel that pain, that emotion arises, and the story then becomes: there's somebody oppressing, hurting, abusing, etc. And and that's how things can get mixed up. So in this in this Damasio model, when he's talking about um, feeling or pain, is he saying that's always a, a physical bodily thing? Or does he also talk about mental pain? Well, thought and feeling, I think, as I recall, were the two areas that he said we separate, but that actually there is no separation because there's always a feeling accompanied by every thought. Yeah. And, it, and in neuroscience terms, it would be called valence. You know, mm. it's, uh, positive valence or a negative valence, meaning it's a positive experience. Maybe we might call one dis discontent mm -hmm. and the other one a uh, pleasurable experience or neutral. And, th and that's actually in the Dharma as well. You know, in the, I think it's in the Satipatthana uh, Sutra talking about feelings are always either positive that's or, right. or neutral. Yeah, and sometimes it's even said in, in these Abhidharma teachings that uh, there's some would say there's not even such thing as a neutral sensation, that what we call neutral is slightly on the unpleasant side, actually. It's almost like an um, apath apathetic sort of feeling is slightly, uh, slightly aversive, so that's interesting. It's always pleasant or unpleasant, however slight. Well, uh, uh, thank you for that. I'm going to look into that more. And, um, and I think, as you say, they can't really be separated, but in this, in this practice model, it's about not exactly separating them, but like s teasing them apart enough to, to um, see the difference and then to focus more on the physical sensation, I think. And because the stories and thoughts are so hard to, to um, 
where they're already tangled all up with resistance and manipulation. But if we can just stay with the physical sensation and not resist that, then the whole mixed mess starts coming into equilibrium. Yes? Uh, I think there's a third component into it. So when we, think, when we talk about think, uh, thoughts, we're talking about electrical signals. When we talk about physical body, we're talking about a physical structure. The link between the two are the hormones, which are chemical molecules. And I think the, the, the root of our emotions are in those molecules. They're like drugs. Like when you take a drug, you feel happy or you feel depressed. So I think that link between the electrical signals and between the physical body is what conditions us into suffering or feel happy, mm. feeling happy or not. Yeah. So that's, what I think that's a kind of um, biological yeah. um, um, explanation of it. Yeah, there's those differences. And also it's good um, to remember that, that um, from a Buddhist point of view, that what we call physical sensations, I'm really kind of separating the, the, the thoughts from the physical sensations, but strictly speaking, physical sensations are a mental phenomena, right? Um, when you say it's, it's, um, it's, these, it's the chemicals and the hormones and so on, what actu- experientially for us, it's the mind that knows these sensations. So in a way that the, the, um, the basic awareness knows both thoughts and it knows what we call sensations. Um, in a, um, in, there are no sensations without a mind. <laughs> there's, no, there's no bodily um, experience without a mind. Uh, so, in that way, both of these are mind, physical sensations and stories, but we're choosing this, this mo- more raw, raw data, raw of the mind that we call physical sensations to work with because it's simpler. Yes? The proposed idea that there is nothing, no thoughts, can you say that again? That, 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 um, yeah. that there can't be a such, there's no such thing as a painful or pleasant thought. Okay, great, thank you, yeah. It seems to be that like, what, what it's playing on is our belief that thoughts are separate from physicality and that we're talking about the fact that they're not separate necessarily. There's some kind of relationship or sometimes there's some sort of physiological basis even. Um, what's interesting to me is that if we relate to it where we're not resisting sensation or resisting the experience or the physical component, that um, there isn't necessarily a problem and that if we're, there's awareness present without the resistance, you know, that yeah. there isn't any affliction. And I'm wondering that if what we call anger, specifically you're talking about, because uh, my experience with this is slightly different, but I definitely relate to what you're saying. Sometimes it can be, in, it can actually be sourced in great care for something, or what I labeled as anger may be all kinds of things stacked up and piled up onto each other, but I put that label on it, Oh God, I don't want to be angry. Hmm. You know, so then there's even resistance. Yes, yes. There's some labeling of it, and it's empty of any of my projections, thoughts, and labels, and anything. So there's some sort of afflictive relationship with whatever is happening, and that may be just there's a resistance to feeling angry. Yeah, yeah, totally. I'm wondering, like, if we just 
there's no afflictive relationship and let it be what it is mm-hmm. existence, mm-hmm. there could be, you know, in my experiences, there could be a strong energetic component to it. But sometimes there's a strong energetic component because there's a response to a transgression that's occurred or the policy of a country that's kind of gone awry, you know, impacting the environment and something needs to be present with, you know, um, there, there's, a, there's, a, there's some sort of response required. So the way it works with the social outer realm and the, and the inner introspective realm in that point is quite interesting to me as well. And I, I wanted to say that because I'm, I'm interested in how all that relates and if we just work with our afflictive relationship to what's happening, perhaps if there isn't a problem and how that kind of works with, with the way you're presenting this. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think anger, I think anger I would define as inherently resistant. It's an, like, again, I would say any afflictive emotion, klesha we call in Buddhism, always comes with, has resistance as part of it. Craving is a kind of resistance or, you know, resistance to what is, right? It's trying to get something that we don't have. Anger is trying to get rid of something that we do have. And, um, and, you know, jealousy is wanting something to be different. So that all, um, afflictive emotions, I say, would say, have resistance, but then, and then you're right, that anger especially, on top of that, we, um, we feel resistant to being angry because it's painful, and that fuels, of course, it increases the anger. And then I think there's even the phenomena, as Zen practitioners, we have, it, it's, I notice this myself, like, if I get angry, I think, and on top of just not wanting to be angry, I'm a Zen practitioner and I'm angry. That makes me really angry. <laughs> like, I, my standard for myself is like, this really shouldn't be happening. And like, of course it gets much worse. The pain gets much worse. And um, so I think uh, with all that resistance, if, yeah, if we can, it's created by resistance, but if we don't resist this resistant situation, then it starts to de-escalate. And I think, again, particularly focusing on the, the physical sensations part, I think is the most helpful. Because um, like, like we're both saying that, that, um, that you, you, it's like the thought and the physical sensation can't really be separated. I think that's true. I would call them, they're not really one thing. I would call them interdependent. The thought and the, and the, and the physical sensation are, are completely interdependent. One arises with the other. And it's always like this. But as this practice, I think it really is about not exactly separating them, but really looking, trying to see how um, if we look at the two components, it becomes much more workable. If we just look at this mess of anger, I don't know what it is, but it's awful, ensnarled mix of painful tension and, and um, destructive thoughts. And that's almost unworkable. But if we start to pull these apart and like, okay, there's these destructive thoughts, but what's, what's really disturbing and causing even more resistance is this tension in the body. And to like focus on that, also kind of like, it kind of, all thoughts are impermanent. So the, the thought of like, if we're really angry at some person, that starts to, um, we kind of forget about that temporarily, which is maybe a good thing if we're focusing on the physical sensation, and then by not resisting the physical sensation, then that starts to de-escalate. Then we can go back to the story and be like, yeah, there's still, I'm still annoyed at that person, but it's much 
less than it was because the sensation is less painful. And then, yeah, this sort of anger, anger at we might call righteous anger. There could be things like that that are not afflictive emotions, like um, anger at uh, at um, injustice or something, and uh, that might not be a klesha, but maybe we shouldn't even call it anger. I like to uh, to make things clear in these discussions. If it's if it's not the klesha called anger, maybe we should just call it. I don't know what we should call it. Um, yeah, you know, kind of passion. Passion, kind of yeah, a kind of passion, a active, pa- strong passion to act, maybe something like that. It could be could be wholesome. And I think it's good to distinguish them and not throw them in the same category. Yeah. So um, it it is said that um, our digestive system. You know, talking about the emotions we have and everything there are about the same number of neurons that tend our digestive system as our inner brain. Mm. And so it makes sense that a thought would have a corollary. Mm. And mm. speaking of that, it's lunch <laughs> And we could take care of these neurons <laughs> to take care of this. Yeah, see, even if we feel hungry and we... Um, and um, we don't resist that and <laughs> just feel hunger. We could also have lunch, so. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by Jokoji Zen Center. Our Dharma talks are offered free of charge, and this is made possible by the donations we receive. Your support helps us to continue to offer the Dharma. For more information about Jokoji, please visit us on the web at jikoji.org.